another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, this is almost always the case anyway from my personal mobile studio. As I make my commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas in my personal mobile studio, my Jetta Diesel TDI, and uh, we share another morning drive together as friends, and uh, like friends do sometimes, I'll talk about the weather. 41 degrees, but there was frost on the grass when I walked down to check the greenhouse today, uh, so obviously it got a little cooler overnight. Um, it's a beautiful day, and yesterday we had a great show on Airsoft, I got a lot of great feedback about it, and uh, today we're going to try to have another great show. We're going to talk about food storage today, and we're going to talk about it in a variety of ways. So I'm going to talk about it from the beans and rice and pasta philosophy. I'm going to talk about it from the buy what you eat and eat what you store, uh, or store what you eat and eat what you store philosophy, and I'm going to talk about it from a gardening philosophy and a gathering philosophy as well. Uh, gathering philosophy both from a foraging philosophy and from uh, maybe philosophy of hunting and fishing. All those worlds coming together to talk about how you can increase your food longevity uh, in the event of a crisis. And uh, before I get into the show, I want to remind everybody, we now have a number that you can call in, questions, comments, etc. And uh, it was pretty tough when I first announced it. No one's called yet, which is the whole thing didn't scare people away. I just want to be clear that just because you called us in, you're going to be on the air. And uh, that if you give me something to bounce off of me, it's going to make it more likely that I'm going to use it. Uh, but I would like to get some folks calling in. The number to call in, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, because we try to think about things here, not just rant. And uh, if you call in your comments and questions, it does not have to be about today's show. In fact, it might be better that it isn't, because you call in about today's show, and uh, then I'm doing a show tomorrow about something different. Uh, it's harder to backpedal. So any topic related to the things we talk about here... Uh, uh, from politics to economics to practical to tactical, whatever it is, give that number a ring, leave a message, and uh, we'll see if we can get you spliced in and on the show. Anyway, so let's roll on and look at this food storage stuff. Now, here's what prompted this today. I put together a little survival news monitoring site, and I'll put a link to that site from the post today using RSS. And basically what this little site does is it goes out and it monitors things about agriculture, things about economics, things about politics, and it monitors. There's uh, quite a few discussion forums out there, including ours, and it also monitors uh, 12 blogs that I think are really great blogs. And uh, one of the blogs out there is the Down in the Hills Survival Blog, and uh, he had a post out, I don't know if it was today or a couple days ago, whatever his latest post was, and it was basically called Running Out of Food. And his point was, you know, us country boys, country girls that are out here that, you know, can kind of like the old Hank Williams Jr. song, you know, we, you know, we can run a trot line and a country boy can survive. Um, so basically, if you're out in the country and you know how to hunt, fish, garden, uh, do all this stuff, when, this, when the shit hits the fan, they're all going to be okay. But what 
what about you? If you're like you're Mr. City Slugger. Now, I think there's a little bit of arrogance there. Just a little bit. And I understand it because some of it runs through my blood, too. Uh, and we like to think of ourselves that are outdoorsmen and, and, you know, handy with a garden and things like that. Uh, and fishermen as being able to provide for ourselves. Now, but if the shit really hits the fan, folks... I mean, really, the, the total breakdown. How much game do you think is going to be out there before people just lay waste to everything and kind of, you know, rape the, the land? And, and that's a real risk if we go that far. And I don't think we're going to go that far. I'll close the show today telling you why I feel that way. But there's that risk, right? So there's only so much that can be harvested from the land without putting more back in. And we have way too many people in this country that even if uh, 20% decided to live off of what's out there to sustain it. But the Post made one of the best points that I have ever, ever heard in the survival community as long as I've been a part of it. And it was that when you have food... And it's enough to survive on and live on for the next three weeks or three months. Some kind of forward go. And you are okay for that period of time. Getting more food is not that big of a problem. There's always a way to grow, harvest, hunt, find, procure, trade for, barter for, whatever. You can always find more when you have some. But when you have none, when you're out, and you have to get go out today and get enough to live on until tomorrow, it ain't so easy. And I thought, wow, that's that is really true. And I thought, well, you know, let's let me think about you know my plan is basically six months of reserves. And if I can go six months, how much more can I produce, procure for myself during those six months? And it's easily another six months. So six months gets me a year. Now, during the second six months off of my procurement, I can pull out another four or five. And I can go, I started running the numbers, I'm going, I can go three, four years off of that before my ability to replenish maybe balances off against, in fact, by then I could probably go further because I have land and I can do these other things. And that was a catalyst to get me to talk about food storage today and try to do it from a new standpoint or a different standpoint than we've done it in the past. So again, I want to talk today about, one, a little bit about gardening, but this won't be a gardening show per se, like some of the shows are doing straight up on gardening, but some different ways to look at your aspects of gardening. I want to look at, again, what you can buy from the store and lay up. Food is dirt cheap right now, even though it's gone up a lot, even though it's a good investment, uh, even though inflation has hit food. It's still dirt cheap when you really look at long-term storage-capable food that you can buy at Kroger uh, or Albertsons or any grocery store out there without even resorting to Mountain House. I want to talk about maybe a little bit about fishing and hunting. And uh, we'll pull all those together and see what we come up with and see if we can create a bit of a different picture on a sustainable food supply if food gets short for the masses. Now, uh, starting with the gardening stuff, I'm big on trying to grow all kinds of new crops and uh, different heirlooms and little novelties and stuff like that. I like to do that, and it's cool, and it preserves diversity. I think it's an important step. But I know what I probably haven't talked enough about is growing high production capacity crops alongside of there that produce things that can be stored through methods like dehydration, uh, canning, 
and freezing. And I know some people are hesitant to use freezing, but freezing is actually a great method of preservation for a lot of different things that you can grow. And in all but the worst of circumstances, we can probably expect to have some level of electrical supply available to us. We may need to cut back drastically financially, but we could probably keep the freezer plugged in. If it doesn't happen, there's other methods of storage. We'll talk about those two, don't worry. But as I thought about that this year, and I looked out at a very mild January here in the state of Texas, what I did this weekend is I went out and I planted a, a large crop of peas. And uh, peas are very cold hardy, very cold resistant. I've got some of them going in the greenhouse. They should be producing uh, probably in the next, I'd say, three weeks. I should be getting a decent harvest out of those uh, those peas that I'm growing. Actually, I'm potting up uh, some strings that are run off the roof of the greenhouse just to see if it would work, and it's worked rather well. But I went out and I planted a an entire four foot by eight foot uh, bed with peas spaced two inches apart in two rows that I'm putting a teepee up in uh, between the two of them as a trellis six foot high this weekend, and we'll train them up there. And that will produce way more peas than we can eat at one time. And we're not really at a point where we want to do a lot of canning. And these are the edible pod peas, right? The ones like you put in Chinese stir fries and stuff like that. Nice, sweet, bright green stuff. And uh, due to that, they're not really ideal for canning either. So we are going to freeze them. Now, something with, with peas and beans and a lot of other vegetables, if you want to freeze them, you have to go through a process called blanching. Now, blanching is where you either partially boil or partially steam the vegetable prior to freezing it. I prefer steam blanching. It's less work if you get the right equipment and you do it right and uh, you kind of get a much more productive process going and it's less of a mess because you're not dipping things in water and pulling them out. Now, I'm not big on spending a lot of extraneous money. I'm not big on spending a lot of money on gadgets and doodads that are, you know, the sophisticated modern stuff when traditional things work. But in this instance, I've done a lot of blanching in my life of beans and peas and other vegetables that have to be blanched if you're going to freeze them. And I've determined that those uh, plastic steamers with the baskets on them are probably about the best uh, that we can expect to get things done with. Um, the ones that have you know, a pretty large capacity basket on them for doing your steaming in will hold uh, about enough uh, vegetables each time you run the process to uh, really fill up a good gallon-sized Ziploc bag. So that's my recommendation there. What, what I'm really getting at, though, is I'm growing peas. I'm going to grow uh, some, some beans and definitely going to grow some pole beans next in uh, a different bed. And just look to have some level of large capacity crop that you can store. Now, we're going to get into canning more uh, this summer, and beans are a more warm weather crop, so we'll be doing a lot of canning with our beans this year to have another method of storage should the freezing method fail. But what I want to point out with your with your growing and your gardening is to start think about larger production capacity, especially with things that store or can be stored long term. And again, beans and peas are one of those things that they'll grow just about anywhere. They provide nitrogen uh, for the soil and for themselves, so they use a lot less fertilizer. They're a good organic crop to grow, uh, very high level of production capacity, and a very long growing season. And between the two of them, using the peas during the cool part of the year and the beans during the warm part of the year, you can not only be producing enough to store, you can be producing enough to eat at the same time. 
Uh, we'll be tossing these little pea pods in. Uh, stir fries will also be stopped, tossing small raw ones in the salads. So begin thinking that way. On your other crops that don't store well, your lettuces, your spinaches, your chards, start thinking about succession planning, where you can plant a little bit today and a little bit next week and a little bit next week and a little bit next week and have crops at various levels of completion all through the growing season so you can be harvesting from them. And if you do that right and spread things out right, you can make yourself a little salad for the family every day from just about when the frost is gone all the way up till the frost comes back and in some parts of the country beyond both ranges. And what's cool is if you're planting a big variety, your salads kind of will change every day. One day maybe it's mostly red leaf lettuce and uh, maybe a, sl- a sliced up baby squash and some cherry tomatoes. And maybe the next day it's some Swiss chard and some uh, some green salad bowl lettuce and uh, maybe a few more tomatoes because once they start, they're going to be there anyway and a couple sweet peppers or something like that. So just start thinking about the different different ways that you can provide things out of your garden that can also be stored. One of the great storage crops out there for cooking uh, with freezing is peppers. Sweet peppers, hot peppers, it doesn't matter. They don't require any blanching. Uh, you simply cut them up in the size you want to store them and throw them into a Ziploc bag and freeze them. They keep very well. You pull them out and throw them in a salad, they're not going to be the same. But if you're cooking with them, frying with them, uh, anything like that, they're going to, you know, making sausage and peppers, what have you, they're going to come out just fine. So that's another crop to look at. That's something I'm upping my production on this year. I grew tons of jalapenos and Anaheim chilies last year. I'm going to back off on that because I'm the only one that really eats the hot peppers in the house. So I'm going to grow a lot more bell peppers and mini bell peppers and small sweet pickle peppers and things like that this year. Uh, preserve the diversity, but increase the size of the crop that everybody in the household will eat. So that's just kind of a mile-high vision of what you can do for yourself with some of your own home-based agriculture. So let's kind of move on from there to uh, to looking at you know the hunter gatherer that still runs through the blood of most people. Now what I plan on doing with a lot of my free time as I can find it, especially on weekends uh, going into the spring and summer this year, is I'm going to spend a lot more time fishing than I did last year. I did not get out and fish enough last year. And I know a little lake that's pretty close to me. I mean I can be on it in 15 minutes from leaving the house. I'm putting my boat in. And uh, I know it very well from a standpoint of fishing it for white bass. And uh, I'm going to put a lot of white bass in the boat this year. They have a very high limit, uh, 25 fish a day uh, during the season. And uh, that's a lot of fish, even with just one guy out there. And uh, you do that trip five, six times a, a month. And from, I would say, about March through July, you can limit out every day if you really want to make an effort to do it. And even 15 is still a lot of fish. If I take my kid with me or a buddy with me once in a while, we put a few extra fish in the boat, we can build up a sizable amount of uh, fish fillets. So we'll do that this year. Now the thing about white bass, they're a great eating fish, but they don't smoke well. So I'm also going to put a lot more effort this year into learning how to pattern the channel catfish out in this lake. And I've been hit or miss with that in the past, and I've tried to do some chumming and all, and I'll find them for a couple days or a couple weeks, and then they just vanish, and I have trouble tracking them down. It's just not the greatest catfishing lake, but I know they're in there. I'm going to put more effort into that. If I can increase that catch, I'm going to do a lot of uh, smoking of catfish, because unlike white bass, uh, cat, smoked catfish is pretty good, and uh, in fact, it's exceptional as far I'd rather have smoked catfish than smoked salmon. And while it's not something you can just lay up and store out in a, in a warm room or anything, it does have 
have a lot longer storage capacity if you lose your freezer or your refrigerator. So those are two forms of uh, you know fish that I'm going to spend a lot of time increasing uh, my supply of this year. And maybe those aren't species that are easy to increase for you wherever you live. Maybe they're not around there. Maybe there's something else. But odds are there's some form of fishing uh, close to you. And if you can, uh, and maybe it's even, you know, worth your money to hire a guide. I mean, the reason I know the Lake My Lake so well is uh, I hired my buddy Haldod, and uh, I hired him a couple times, and hell, if he ever actually wants me to hire him again, I probably would, uh, just because I like fishing with him. And uh, that really taught me the lake, and it shortcutted a lot of my learning curve. Some guides don't like to uh, take people out and teach them a lake. They want to keep them dependent on them. But most of them, especially if you say, hey, man, this is what I'm looking for, and I'll pay you a little more. I understand, you know, your, your goal and your agenda. I'm not going to be following you around next time I come out here on my own. But I would like to understand this lake, know its formations, know where the humps are, know where the, you know, the coves are, things like that. And if you could help me with that, it's worth a little bit more to me. You usually get pretty good cooperation out of a guide. And they tend to give you what you want. So there's some to consider as well. Uh, so my challenge to you is to locate a source of fresh fish that's safe to eat somewhere near where you live that you can learn more about and uh, become good at procuring some, some fish from. And uh, you'd probably be surprised just about anywhere in this country you're going to find a place where that can be done. And if you can't, then look for something else. Look for another alternative. But try to check into that. Learn the regulations in your area. You might find that there's a species of fish that's overpopulated and has you know, high limits and, and other things like that. And uh, Hold on, folks. I'm dealing with a backup here. Everybody slams on their brakes for no reason or whatever. Um, so, so check into that, and I think you'll uh, you'll find that there's something out there like that. My next thing is start looking around at what you can forage. Uh, down here in Texas and up at my homestead in Arkansas, once spring comes, something that's everywhere, if you know what to look for, you just go out and look for it and find it, is blackberries. Now, if you take a, a jug of wild blackberries and stick them in your refrigerator, they're not going to be very good a week from now. They don't store well that way. But they have potential to be you know, turned into things. They can uh, actually blackberries uh, and many other berries freeze very well. Now, they're only going to be good for cooking after that, but you can look at freezing them. You can look at making jellies and jams out of them, and you can do my favorite thing to do with berries. You can turn them into wine. And uh, I'm going to fire back up the uh, beer making and wine making skills that have been absent in the Spirico household uh, for uh, a couple of years. I've just not had time to do things like that. And uh, this year there's going to be quite a bit of blackberry wine laid up. And uh, if you're not a drinker, and I know some folks uh, for religious reasons or health reasons aren't drinkers, that's fine. Uh, maybe you make juice. I don't know. That's up to you. But I'm telling you that blackberry wine, uh, especially wild blackberry wine made by a good wine maker, will hold its own against a lot of California Cabernets. And uh, it's one of those things that gets better with age. And I'm going to even experiment with doing some oak aging uh, this year with that. So... You know, and there's not a lot of other wild berry crops available to me here. But what I remember for those of you that live in the Northeast, 
is that we used to go pick wild blueberries or huckleberries by the gallons when I lived up there. And there were there were little mountain ranges everywhere where in the in the spring and the summer there were blueberries all over the place. And if you've ever picked a blueberry, you can sit at a blueberry bush instead of these big giant blueberries you can grow in your own backyard. You know, the wild ones, they're little. And you can sit for hours and hours and hours trying to fill up a few pint jars of blueberries. And you're thinking, man, this is a lot of work for a little bit of berries. Well, there's something called a blueberry rake. And if you've never seen one, go to Google, search for blueberry rake. And they can be used for picking other types of berries, but they're ideal for picking blueberries. One, you know, the majority of the blueberries on the bush are ripe. And it's basically a little scoop with a bunch of little uh, kind of wiry looking pieces at the end. And you run that rake through the bush and you can pick a gallon of blueberries in 10 minutes with a good blueberry week, a good blueberry rake at the peak of the harvest. Uh, up in Pennsylvania, we used to have a lot of wild strawberries around as well, and those were another great crop to pick. So what I'm saying is learn what's available to you locally. A lot of places you'll find lamb's lettuce or chicory and other different uh, uh, native greens and things that can be picked in the summer and add you know more, uh, more bulk to your salads and things like that. And you can actually encourage their growth in your backyard instead of trying to have a Bermuda lawn, maybe encourage some of the wild weeds that are actually edible to grow in your lawn. They just kind of do pretty well on their own, especially if they're native. Uh, there's a great YouTube uh, channel uh, called Eat the Weeds. I'll also post a link to from uh, this show. And this guy's done about 60-odd shows now going through various wild plants that can be found in, in all over uh, North America. And, I mean, in this case, covered everything from amaranth to chicory to uh, to lamb's lettuce, to you name it, uh, dandelion, all the different stuff that's out there. He goes through and helps you figure out how to identify it and how to be sure of what you're looking at, uh, how it can be used for food, when you can expect to find it, where you can expect to find it. And that's part of the identification process. If you see a plant that really looks like the plant he's talking about, but it's you know it's only in the southern United States and you're in Maine, don't eat it. Right? He'll tell you the same thing. So start looking at what is out there that you can uh, learn to procure. Because, again, you think about shit hitting the fan. Well, those big black berries on the blackberry bush, you don't have to be real smart to find those or know that they're safe to eat. So if people really collectively go to the land for food, that type of source is going to be wiped out quick. But a lot of these uh, these weeds and these, these, uh, these leaf vegetables and things like that, most people have no freaking idea what they are. And that means that they tend to stick around a lot longer in a, you know, even an urban survival environment. So learn about those and start thinking of ways that you can take uh, your gathering, not just to, you know, summer, you know, summer grasshopper living, but what can be gathered that can be stored for long-term, you know, ant living. That brings me to kind of going into the fall, you know, are there native nut trees in your area? Uh, one of the things you can learn about, this is something I haven't done, because uh, it seems like an awful lot of work, but acorns make a pretty good flower if you get the right acorns and put them through the right process. It just seems like a massive amount of work for a little bit of food. But it's something I'm going to just do to learn the skill this year, is harvesting white acorns 
and uh, dehusking them and, and removing the that, that brown layer from them and forming them into a nut powder, a flour that can be used to make pancakes and thicken stews and stuff. And the good news for me is I have two large white oak trees in my backyard. Uh, so I have a, a huge supply of them back there. Uh, we'll see how much work it really is. But just start looking at what's out there. Uh, a lot of parts of the country are full of black, you know, native, wild-growing black walnut. Uh, black walnuts have a tough shell, but you know what? They store beautifully. They can store for, for months and months and months once the, uh, the outer husk rots off of them, and you just open them as needed. So start learning these other things that are out there and put them into your procurement process. Now, understand the wisdom that came from backwoods, the backwoods, down in the woods, whatever, down in the hill survival blog. That's that's the guy's blog. When you have food, it's easy to create, make, and procure more. So on top of all these things, stick to the basic easy things. Have a good supply, and it's so inexpensive to even have two or three months worth of rice, beans, pastas, sauces, canned goods available in your home. It's so freaking affordable. Do it. If you store enough rice to do that, it's probably enough rice if you use it in your cooking and pasta, if you use it in your cooking, to last you a year and a half if you're not a big pasta and rice eater. So what you do is you get this large supply you buy at volume, you store it well so that it doesn't go bad, and you pull from it as you need. Now, a lot of people are on this, you know, low-carb diet, and I used to do it myself, and it works, and I understand if you're not a big rice eater or a big pasta eater. But what I've started to learn is if you're eating all these foods from the wild, and uh, you're eating lean meats, and uh, you're, you're, you're creating this very diet for yourself that's not based on grains, but has grains, has meats, has these, these vegetables, it doesn't really matter. It all works out the same. So it's up to you what you want to eat day to day. I'm just telling you that that's, that beans, rice, pasta mix has a lot of variable potential. There's so many things that can be done with it. It can be combined with so many things from the garden. Let's look at, okay, beans and rice. That sounds kind of blue, right? But you have, let's say, some nice black beans, good quality jasmine rice, soak your black beans, alright, a little bit of bacon fat, if you don't have any, you can go totally vegetarian with this, I have a hard time when I don't have to be a vegetarian being one, so at least use some bacon fat with this just to give it some flavor, brown your bacon fat in a pan, go out to your garden, okay, Two or three big beefsteak tomatoes. Chop them up real fine. Throw them in there. Clove of garlic. An entire onion. Alright? Start to get that working and cooking. You start adding water. Chop up some carrots, celery. Very, very, very fine. Um, in fact, you add that before the water. Cook that in with the tomatoes. Start to cook that down. Carrots, celery, onions, garlic, tomatoes. You start making a base. All right. Chop up any other good vegetable that can that can handle being cooked long term. No squash, nothing like that. Um, maybe a little bit of fennel, uh, parsnips, uh, leeks. Anything that helps make a good veg- vegetable stock. Add that in. Then start adding your water. You're going to need salt for this. That's going to bring out all this vegetable flavor. Get that up to you know a nice pot full of this stuff simmering. Throw your black beans in that have soaked overnight. Your dry black beans, soak them overnight. Cook those beans. All right? Now you have kind of a bean soup. Take your rice. Separate pot. Don't. This is how you cook rice, folks. 
All right. I, I don't care how many times you cooked rice another way. You try it this way, you'll never cook rice again any other way. Take your rice, ignore the instructions to tell you how much water to use. Make a pot full of water. Throw the rice in there like you're cooking pasta by eye. Boil the rice. Boil the crap out of it. Test it. You know, when you taste it and it's cooked, it's done. Dump it in a strainer. Strain it. Rinse it with cold water. Rinse all the starch off of it. It'll be cold. Now, you add it to a hot dish to heat it up, or, you know, if the, you know, shit hasn't hit the fan, heat it up in your microwave to serve it as a side dish. So make your rice that way. Right at the end, when you're done cooking the rest of the soup, Take some fresh vegetables that don't cook long term, like some chopped zucchini and chopped yellow squash, alright, maybe a little bit of a chopped winter squash if you have some early winter squashes, or some uh, garden peas or some chopped green beans, stuff that only needs to cook for, you know, two minutes to be done, a little chopped broccoli, alright, so make a little vegetable medley. Throw that into your pot of beans, and then add a cup or two of rice to it. That's all you need to cook is a cup or two of rice to put into something like this. If you're making enough soup to feed, you know, a family of uh, four, right? Make a vegetable rice and bean soup like that. You'll be amazed at what the rice and beans do for you. The two together give you a complete protein. Now, I'm, a veg- I'm not a vegetarian, right? I am far from a vegetarian. Uh, every time I think about meat, the first thing I do is I run my tongue over my two eye teeth, those fangs that are left in there from our predator instincts of where we come from. All right? But if you're in a situation where there's less meat around, you need some source of protein to augment. Rice and beans combined together. That little soup, you want to really jazz it up a bit, shuck off uh, one or two uh, cobs of uh, good sweet corn from the garden, just cut it off, throw it in at the very end with your squash. Absolutely phenomenal. People that say, I don't like beans, they'll eat that. They'll eat it. Especially if they're hungry. So, you can take these these mass storage items like pasta, rice, beans, and you can do the same thing and do it with a pasta. You can do it the same thing with a pasta and a small amount of beans, especially like your Italian beans, your kidneys, and things like that. It's a wonderful soup, and it can be different every day because what's available from the garden is different every day. So start using creativity and bringing your two worlds, the worlds of agriculture and store-bought goods together. Look at the other things that store well that you'll eat. I'm a big sardine eater, so. I keep a lot of sardines in my storage. Uh, the rest of the family won't eat them, but that's a protein source for me. Where they, you know, we can get in a situation where we have fresh meat, uh, but there's not that much of it. I can let them have more, and I can partake of sardines, and I would be happy. So start looking. How much food can I keep in the pantry that I or the rest of the family eats anyway? That stores for six months to two years without refrigeration. And you, you, basically, when you go into your grocery store. And you look at the perimeter, and that's the stuff that needs refrigeration, and everything in the center will store. Now, a lot of that stuff that stores is garbage. It doesn't belong in your body. I leave that choice, though, to you. I'm not going to say, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. But there's a lot of stuff in there that's good, staple foods. And you got to eat anyway, so you got to buy food anyway. So all I'm saying is start buying a little bit more. If you have no stored food... I don't care what you got to do. Get a couple weeks stored up as, pa- as fast as possible and get yourself to a month as, as quickly as you can. There's This is the time to start really getting serious. We could have problems this year, big problems this year. We may not. I'm not one of these guys that say, it's going to happen on this day. I think you're nonsensical when you do that. You're trying to be more intelligent than reality. Um, 
but there's some things going on right now that you need to be aware of. One of them is in California. People are expecting their state tax rebates right now. In other words, in California, you pay a state income tax, just like a federal income tax. Well, a lot of people end up overpaying. At the end of the year, you file a return. You either owe more and you pay the difference. You've paid the right amount and nobody pays anything. Or, as in the case of most people with federal tax returns, you've overpaid and the government owes you. So you file your taxes, the government sends you a check. Same thing with the state government of California. There's a lot of people that have a check coming. California has suspended writing those checks. So let's say that the government of California owes you $600 back on your taxes. You're not getting a check right now. They're not sure when they're going to be able to pay it. Why? They don't have the money. They don't have the money. I listed 11 states back a few months ago and said these states are in danger of bankruptcy. New Jersey and California were chief among them. The states are going bankrupt. So what is that in danger? Well, that endangers the welfare checks, folks. The state pays the welfare check. California has 500,000 people on welfare in Los Angeles County alone. State comptroller said, for now, we're able to pay those welfare checks. What happens if those welfare checks don't go out? Let's say of those 500,000 people in Los Angeles, 90% of them are not going to do anything wrong. They're going to be mad, they're going to want their money, but they're not going to turn cars over. They're not going to set things on fire. They're not going to riot in the streets. They're not going to go beat anybody up. They're going to make phone calls and go, where's my, I need my money, I need my money. Give me my money. My money, as though it's their money. When you get a welfare check, it should say, gift from taxpayers to you. Right? You should know it's a gift, because that's what it is. Side note, though. Right? Let that go. Um, what happens to the 10%, the 50,000 that say, we want our money now, and they take to the streets and start burning them? And how many people that aren't on welfare, once those 50,000 start burning, will get join in? Folks, if we see California in flames within 90 days, I won't be surprised, especially L.A., you know, and some of those other areas that, that really are quite volatile. And if we start seeing places like Newark, New Jersey go up, man, if you live in Newark, I, I hate to sound vicious, but I think if Newark, New Jersey went up in flames, it wouldn't even be a loss. That place is gone. Uh, Camden's, Camden, New Jersey is another place that's just, you know, I, I, it's almost a lost cause, some of the areas. In that, the, Camden's got some places that are trying to come back, but some of those places are just, God, you know, a bomb is the best thing that can happen to them. Uh, hopefully they get the people out first, but you need to level the place and start over. And there's definitely some neighborhoods in Los Angeles that are the same thing. you got to get the people out and lay waste to the place and say, we got to start over here. There, there, Chicago's another one. Illinois is in danger of bankruptcy. Swift State's in danger of bankruptcy. So I want a little bit of a sense of urgency under here. It is time to get serious about this stuff. Because once the cities start to go... What happens is we get disruptions in that distribution system. Remember, I've been talking a lot this year about the dependence on the different systems instead of the system. You think about it that way, you start to understand where the threats come and what's most imminent, what's going to happen first. Well, even if the farmers are still growing the food, 
A lot of these major cities are these hubs of distribution. Well, how are we going to get the... the Dallas is not burning, right? L.A. is. All that agricultural harvest in California, how's it going to get to Texas? I say buy from your local economy, but obviously, you know, 6 million people in DFW alone can't buy from their local economy. So what happens there? So you just start looking at this. So start thinking of how you can marry all this together. The last thing I want to talk about is hunting. I save hunting for last because I think for many people, it's the least available to them. It's the hardest work, lowest return on your investment financially for many people. Now, if you live in Wyoming and you have the National Forest in your backyard, you can go shoot an elk every year. I, I mean, that's pretty good ROI if you consistently take an elk. Even a cow elk, you know, 500-pound animal, that's a lot of meat. But a guy in Texas might have to go spend $2,500 for a deer lease to go shoot a 120-pound deer that you get about 60-ish pounds of meat out of. $2,500 buys a lot of meat. So unless you live in an area with good public hunting, good open hunting, or good hunting that's easy to procure uh, without spending a lot of money, it can be a low return investment. But the, the, the kind of the bang for the buck, kind of do it in your spare time after work hunting that can put extra meat on the table is usually small game. Even in a lot of places where you have to pay to go out and uh, hunt deer or other big game, do you want to go out and shoot squirrels or rabbits? Farmers are like, please, there's too many of them. So that might be something that you look into as well. Now, I'm all—I'm a deer hunter and I'm an archery hunter. And part of why I bought land in the type of area that I did in Arkansas was so I could hunt in my backyard up there. So if you have the type of situation like that, it's definitely something to afford yourself of. But just understand that going out and shooting a deer a day is not even legal. I, I guess there's a few states that during the season actually have a deer a day limit. There's not that many hunters. But in most places, you're, you're looking at one or two deer a year. And that doesn't feed a family for a year, folks. It's an augmentation. But now if you start to put the small game hunting, a little bit of medium or large game hunting together with, with the gathering, with the agriculture, and with food storage, you do get to a point where you look at you go, country boy can survive. And it's important just to understand, though, that it takes these things together. And forming this base of storage by going out and buying food while it's readily available and cheap, and taking that base of storage and combining it with a base of production from your own backyard with good solid storage methods and good succession cropping so that you're able to take the stuff that doesn't store and harvest it throughout the season instead of all at once and having half of it go to waste. And putting those together forms a base where, yes, it's much easier to go get more food when you're okay for the next few months. And your very survival doesn't depend on your success or failure today. And that's why I thought it was a great blog post and a great source of wisdom for us to look at today. Now, why am I an optimist in spite of all all that's bad out there. And I guess it's because I'm an entrepreneur and I've, I've created companies and I've created businesses and I've created websites that have produced money uh, for me with very little effort after they're, they're set up and running. I've created companies that have employed people. I've been a salesperson before I took the entrepreneur hat and put it on and I went out and I created businesses and at, at you know, Fluke Networks, uh, I and my team created, a small group created over $60 million worth of business a year and I looked back and saw how many people that worked at corporate that didn't even know most of the guys that worked for me, never met them, owed their living to those guys that were out there that could create things. I, I look at the fact that I created this show with your help. 
and I went from one guy ranting into a little box six months ago to a show with thousands of listeners and a thriving community and I just created it and it's not about me that's America folks that's the spirit that is America that's the spirit that when they were you know building uh, the Chrysler building and the Empire State building and they were fighting each other to make the coolest looking and the tallest building and in the Chrysler building they kept the needle inside the building and they waited until the Empire State building was done and the people that built it said look we have the tallest building in New York. And the folks working for Walter P. Chrysler said, crank it up. And that needle went up and they won the battle. I look around at America and I see uh, things like, like housewives who've built businesses selling cosmetics for God's sakes and earn more money than their husbands who have worked a noble trade or even a college you know, level job their entire lives. I look around at the innovation that built the automotive industry before it went to hell in a handbasket. Henry Ford that figured out how to take something that was exclusive and only for the wealthy and make it available to the masses by creating a process known as an assembly line. The innovation Henry Ford took when he went out and said, I want somebody to build motors for my car. But the people, when you're bidding on the motor, I want them in a crate shaped like this with holes here and holes here. And the guys went, fine, whatever Henry wants, we want the contract. So everybody bid with the, case, the crates that way. And when the crates came in, they took them apart, turned them into the floorboards of the Model T. I look at the innovation of a guy like Walter P. Chrysler, who drove his car and saved his money for years out to an auto show. And bought, I don't remember if it was a Ford or a Chevy, but bought the most innovative car built in America at the time before Chrysler ever existed. Went home, put that brand new car in his garage, and took it apart piece by piece down to the nuts and bolts. So there was nothing left that could come apart. And everybody thought he was crazy. And then he put the car back together. And after he put it back together and everything worked, you know what he did? He took it apart again and he did that repeatedly. And he made notes. And he looked at everything that was flawed and everything that could be improved upon. And then he came out with his own car. And he created the Chrysler, the Chrysler Company. And that's why that Chrysler building is even in New York. And while that battle of the needle ever even happened. And his neighbors that thought he was crazy when he was taking this car apart don't have a building anywhere in the world named after them. And I look at all that, I look at that spirit of America, and I realize that creativity, that ability to create jobs, that entrepreneurism, a guy like John Willis, who's been good, good to us here, sponsoring our show, that goes out and says, you know, I make tactical gear, but it's Christmas time. I'm going to make a freaking stocking and put, you know, molly loops and Velcro on it so that people can give it to their, you know, uncle that's a, you know, a sergeant in the police force on a tactical team, or a, a soldier serving overseas defending our nation. Creating something out of thin air that people see value in and that means something to somebody. I look at all these things and I realize all these threats are out there, yes, but it's not just the threats coming to attack us. It's a war. And it's a war of that creativity, that innovation, that entrepreneurism against the threats. And it's like a war. It's like a battle. There'll be times when we lose men. We'll get killed. 
will get knocked down. And we have to keep fighting. But in the end, I believe that spirit wins the war. It won't win every battle, but it will win the war. That's why you have to prepare, but that's why you have to be optimistic about the future. If you're not optimistic about the future, store all the food you want. When it runs out, you're dead and it's over if we don't rebuild what tears down. My faith in the ability of the American people to rebuild is greater than my belief in the ability of those that would destroy to tear down. And I believe that when they tear enough down, that it is a fight for survival, that those that can destroy cannot survive. That leaves the survivors. The survivors are the entrepreneurs, the creative, the ones that will put society back together. Whether it goes to a Mad Max level or a 1930s Great Depression level, doesn't really matter. It's always people like that that rebuild and replace and make better and go further and, and go beyond what's done before. That's why I'm an optimist. That's why I do this show from the mentality that I bring it to you with. You know, just to reinforce the battle, when, when the Allies invaded Normandy successfully in World War II, World War II was effectively over. Germany had no chance of winning the war once that was achieved. But for months and months and months, Allied soldiers and German soldiers died. And if we had laid back and said, hey, we got it made, we would have lost. There was a battle of the bulge that happened. Alright? Where the German line almost pushed through. And, and, and the Allies, and, and mostly it was Americans in this particular area, were pushed to the brink of surrender but said, nuts, we ain't doing it. And they advanced and eventually they won the war. That's what we're in. And I, don't, I know that it's not like a Hollywood ending all the time. The good guy doesn't always get the girl and the cowboy doesn't always ride away in the sunset. But the greater power... The greater force in a battle eventually always wins. And I believe that creativity is the greater force. And I invite you to join with people like that with not just your actions but your thoughts. Because your thoughts are important. Your thoughts are going to help you survive whatever comes. No matter how tough things get. No matter how hard things get. It's that mentality that you have that makes a difference for you. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where your went. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.